The scripture this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, but I really actually, you won't have it up on the board, but I want to read more of it. Um, I want to read 26 to 38. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. So here is the account of Mary. Now last week we studied Joseph, and do you remember what we said about Joseph? They were very simple things. Joseph was righteous, and therefore he condemned sin in his bride-to-be, Mary. She got pregnant. He was prepared to put her away. He could not countenance an immoral woman as the mother of his children and as his wife. But because he was tender, he was going to do it secretly. So you have that uniquely masculine beauty of discipline and tenderness. Okay? Completely melded together. That's Joseph. Then, when God comes to Joseph with the angel and tells him to take that woman as his wife, and there were many reasons we saw last week why he wouldn't want to do that, all right? Joseph says, Yes, sir. And he obeys God. Then, when he needs to protect his family, he protects them. And then when he needs to provide for them, he provides for them. And so what we said last week about Joseph is simple things, simple things. Discipline and tenderness, provision, protection, and then what? And then what? And then die. And so if you're a man and you get married, and you have discipline and tenderness together, and you provide and you protect, go ahead and die. That's all you need to do. Don't have any higher aspirations. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough for Africa. That's enough for America. That's enough for China. Okay? Men who are godly and who 
enforce the standards of righteousness and enforce them in a way that shows their love and tenderness. They, they obey God, and then they provide, they protect, and then they die, and that's it. And that's about all we know about Joseph, isn't it? It's what we know about him. Now, Mary, and what you all want me to do at this point is you all want me to say, and so Mary, what we see about Mary is that she is righteous, and so she, she disciplines her husband, but she does it tenderly. And she obeys God, and she provides, and she protects, and then she dies. In other words, what you want is you want a unisex statement of righteousness. Because anytime we get particular about the nature of sexuality and righteousness, everybody has a hissy fit. Well, why did you say that? You know, she's just a person. Well, she's not a person, she's a woman. And so Mary, like Joseph, Mary manifests righteousness in a, uh, uh, a gender-specific way. But you know that's not the way I want to say it, right? She manifests righteousness in a sex-specific way. And this is just so foundational, and you have to learn it, and you have to learn to love sex-specific ways of righteousness. So, for instance, if I were to tell you that Mary's righteousness consisted of having a human being growing in her womb and swelling and getting stretch marks, all of a sudden, you're okay with that because it's kind of inescapable, right? But what about the things that are more psychological than physical? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that Mary is godly womanhood defined. All right? There's a reason why the church has always been tempted to displace God with Mary, but not with Joseph. Why? Well, you say, well, it's because Mary actually had was, was the mother of Jesus, whereas Joseph wasn't her father. But the Bible actually refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. All right, So that's not why. And you say, well, it's because the Bible doesn't ever say that Mary is highly favored one. Or Joseph is, I, I meant, the Bible never says Joseph is highly favored. It says Mary, it singles Mary out in a unique way. And I say, that's not why. The reason you're tempted to displace God with Mary and to worship Mary and to have her be the mediatrix is because Mary is a woman. And it's because all of us would rather have God come to us through a woman than a man. There's a reason why everybody has women preach to them. The reason why elders who are men are forced to be women in the way they relate to us. There's a reason why our books are all femi. There's a reason why the Roman Catholic Church all through the Middle Ages was constantly going in the direction of displacing God, who's high and lifted up, with sweet Mary. Because she's a woman. That's why. She's feminine. Okay? And so, if you think about it, there's a reason why down at the abortuary you have a bunch of people praying to Mary. Because it's so much less scary than praying to God. If you had a difficult thing to explain about your sinfulness when you were a child and growing up, which parent did you go to? 
your dad, right? Now, some of you, it's true, but that's because your dad was Femi, you know? Or that's because your your, your mother was maybe just a little bit masculine, right? And so what we have here is we have Joseph, who is a man, and Mary, who is a woman. And never in history has anybody ever talked about this, because never in history have people just thrown off the meaning and purpose of sexuality the way the Western world has done and the Northern Hemisphere has done in the last 50 years. We've never done it. It's never been there. And so we have to, we have to deal with basic things that they've never had to deal with before. We have to speak against abortion. The church has never spoken against abortion. And you say, oh, yes, it has. And I say, okay, it has. But it was just a parenthetical statement because it was never thought that it could be something that was okay. You know? And so you'll find, for instance, in the Didache, you'll find in the Oath of Hippocrates, uh, you'll find actual statements condemning abortion, but they're like an afterthought. You know, they're, they're just mentioned in passing. Oh, yeah, and don't forget, we don't do that. Well, today, it's like, what used to be taken for granted, we have to single out. With Mary, we've got to do this. Now, let me ask today, what kind of, um, well, let me first ask this. Who was Mary and what was her dilemma? Because she had a dilemma, and if we're going to learn from Mary, we have to be able to enter into her dilemma. Mary had a dilemma. Now, what was the dilemma? Well, if you look at the text, you'll see part of it. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, with John the Baptist, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel is one of the seven archangels, arch being ruling, leading. So he's one of the like top, top angels in, in the heavenly order, okay? He came from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. You need to understand a little bit about geography at the time. You have Palestine divided into three sections. At the top is Galilee, Under Galilee is Samaria, and under Samaria is Judea. Now, you know Judea is where Jerusalem is, and so it's, you know, it's it's proud, it's it's wealthy, and it's Jewish. And you know in the middle, Samaria is despised, right? Samaritans. What do you know about Galilee, though? Well, Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles, And people looked down on Galilee because they lived right next to the pagans. And you know in the Old Testament, so much of the religious life consisted of being clean. You you know, you weren't to have a house with this on the walls. You weren't supposed to touch this. You weren't supposed to have sex now. Everything about it was this animal you can't eat, this animal you can't. Everything about it was separation and cleanliness, all right? So if you have a whole people group that lives constantly in the midst of Gentiles, goyim, all right, you know the term goy, right? If you have people living in the midst of that, everybody who's clean and separated and around the holy city of Jerusalem is going to look down on them, right? That's where Mary's from. That's where Joseph's from, okay? Then you take the fact that they're from what town in, in Galilee? They're from Nazareth. And the people in Judea looked down on the people in Samaria. The people in Samaria looked down on the people in Galilee. And Galileans looked down on Nazareth. Because we have Nathaniel 
saying, um, let me read this to you. Nathaniel says, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, this is what he says. He says, John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So they're from a poor and despised location, and then the city in that location, that province, that everybody else in the province looks down on. Why? Because Nathaniel was from Galilee, and Nathaniel, being a Galilean, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? All right? Now, I could spend some time talking about, in the United States, which state is despised, and obviously it's the South. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're not from America, just let me tell you, everybody in America looks down on the South. That's the purpose of being a Northerner. And the people in the South have certain states they look down on. Now, I'm not going to get more specific than that, but I'll give you a clue. It's not North Carolina they look down on. North Carolina still thinks it's kind of Northern. It's got Duke, right? Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. <laughs> Somebody hissed. Um, And then it's the city. And this is where Mary and this is where Joseph are from. So that means that their accent, if it's in Britain, it's a Cockney accent. It's in America, it's southern. But it's deep southern. It may be South Carolina, George. I hate to tell you this. Um, But I don't think it is. Um, So they have a bad accent, and everywhere they go, it's clear. You know, they go up to Jerusalem, because that's part of being godly. And when they go, they identify by their accent. They identify by their clothing. They don't dress the way that sophisticated people do. You know that they're uneducated. And you know that even in Galilee, they're from Nazareth, so they're despised. She's betrothed, and we know from last week that means that she has been pledged. Her family and his family have gotten together, and they've pledged these two kids to each other. But you know that he really isn't a kid anymore because he's probably about eight years older than she is, so he's probably between 18 and 20, and she is 12 to 14. All right. So they're young. They have a hick accent. They're from a despised province, a despised city. They're in the middle of their engagement. And then she becomes pregnant. She has an angel appear to her, and the angel tells her that she's going to have a baby. And this is at a time where it is embarrassing not to be a virgin. Now, I need to spend 20 minutes explaining that foreign concept to you. Because today in America, the ones that are embarrassed are the ones who are virgins. We know nothing about purity sexually. Absolutely nothing. So if you can just flip your heads to what we have today, and imagine a time, an exotic time, in an exotic land, where virginity of the woman was absolutely essential. 
where a hint of it not being there was the end of the marriage. Jesus says, except for porneia. Any man that divorced, except for porneia, right? And so all of a sudden, she finds out that she's pregnant. Her immediate thought is, I already am in the despised city in the despised province, poor, young, and I have a man, and now I'm pregnant. And that man is going to think that my pregnancy is the result of me having sex with somebody other than him. Because she knows she hasn't had sex with Joseph. Now, we can't understand this because we have solutions to problems like this. And the solution is to kill the unborn child. But back then, there was abortion. They had it. But back then, abortion was something that you knew the chance that you would die in the process of having one was pretty high. And you also knew that it was going to take some real money, right? But the truth was, it would have been inconceivable, inconceivable to Mary that she would murder a child. Inconceivable that anybody that knew God would kill a child. It was inconceivable. And so, again, you've got to flip from today. It's impossible for you to understand this exotic time, this exotic place, these exotic people, and this exotic religion where virginity was just the beginning of what was required and where it was inconceivable that you would kill a child because of embarrassment, because of the potential that child had to destroy your, your marriage, your pending marriage. And this is the situation Mary finds herself in. She can't kill the child. She can't kill the child. And she didn't have sex with Joseph... And you have the whole community watching. Everybody's watching Joseph and Mary. Everybody's watching them. There's no anonymity. You go into the mall, and it's not just four people that say hi to you. (laughs) Absolutely everybody knows how much trash you have every week. They know what time you go to the bathroom in that community. And here's Mary, and she's pregnant. And what is she going to do? And the ironic thing is that the angel Gabriel began the message by saying, greetings, favored one. And it's a pathetic translation. I mean, it it really is pathetic. Can you imagine if somebody said, greetings, favored one? And you'd think they're going to give you the things that you pull apart and they pop. (laughs) You know, party favors. You know, and if it's not party favors, what is it? Would you do me a favor? What is favored one? It doesn't communicate anything. And greetings. What's greetings? You know? Holiday greetings to everyone. You know? Greetings is the generic of hello being the specific. 
<laughs> you know, that's all greetings are. And it's just awful. It's an awful translation. Because if you go back to the language at the time, what you're going to immediately see is that... Um, I've got to find where it is here because I came up with a translation I want to read to you. And I don't ever, ever, ever do that because I think it's stupid to ever have a pastor tell you what the text really means because we haven't spent enough time studying Greek or Hebrew to ever tell you what it really means. You really need to spend a life in Greek and Hebrew to say what it really means. Even Josh is nowhere near the point where he can tell you what it really means. Until you get to a text where... The, the terminal inferiority complex of Protestants has corrupted a particular text for a particular reason, and then you understand it. You know what I'm saying? In other words, Protestants have a chip on their shoulder when it comes to Mary. And then it makes perfect sense why they've done what they've done. Okay, so here's what the ESV says. So you know what the NASB says. The NASB says, greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. All right? The ESV says, greetings, oh, favored one. And I'm convinced the reason they put oh in there is because it gives it a patina of like sac- sac- sacrimonious, sanctimonious kind of sort of King James kind of. It just sounds spiritual. <laughs> greetings, oh, favored one. You know, does that sound good? All right. King James Version, Hail thou that art highly favored. Somewhat better. Actually, this time, the new King James Version gets closest because it says rejoice, highly favored one. The word that's translated greetings really is joy to you. All right? And then you come to the second thing, which is what is translated without exception in all of these, either favored one or highly favored. And the root of that word, it's only used twice in the New Testament, and I'll give you a clue what the root is by telling you that the other place that construction appears is in the book of Ephesians, the first chapter. And if you know your Bibles you're going to guess that the root of that word is the root of the word that we get, our word. Anybody want to take a guess? Charismatic or charisma from. And if you know the meaning of the word charismatic or charisma, you know that you're talking about charis, which is what? Grace. The real root of this word is the word that everywhere else in Scripture is translated grace. Now, remember I said that Protestants have a chip on our shoulder. And we always want to, you know, make sure that the Catholic error with Mary is not, that we don't make it, right? Because it is a horrible error, like Jody was saying last night. So we know, if you've ever been down to Planned Parenthood or ever gone to a Mass, we know that what Roman Catholics do is they say a rosary. Some of you used to be Roman Catholics. Stand up and give us the rosary for the first 30 seconds, please. Can you do it, Michael? Can you do it, Emily? Jesus. Yeah, that Jesus always kind of pops out at you. 
Yeah. Okay, now, would you say it so people can hear you, please? <laughs> Yell it. You're a football game. Jesus. Right. Okay. All right. Okay, so Hail Mary, full of grace. Now you understand why it's not translated right. Nobody wants to say full of grace because then you're going to be in the rosary. All right? But actually, full of grace is a fairly good translation. What I came up with is joy to you, recipient of much grace, favor, or blessing. Now, that's not a good... That's, listen, that's not a good translation. What I'm trying to do with you is to get you to see favor in between grace and blessing. And then you have a beginning of an understanding of what they mean when they say favor. They don't want to say grace, but they don't want to say happiness. Because happiness is so pathetic. <laughs> you know? Are you happy? Well, yes, this is just beautiful. My own home, my own room. All right. (laughs) That's Simon and Garfunkel. All right. So I did joy to you. Now, I think that's good, actually. Joy to you! Joy to you! Joy to you! And then, full of grace. Joy to you, you're full of grace. That actually is a good translation. Joy to you, you're full of grace. You're pregnant. Now, are you with me? You understand now what's going on. She's from Galilee, she's from Nazareth, she's poor, she's 12 to 14 years of age. She's marrying a man that's so poor that he takes two doves for the offering. And the angel appears to her and says, Joy to you, you're full of grace. You're pregnant. And it is anything but joy. It's anything but joy. Because think of what her options are now. What is she going to do? Is she going to go to Joseph and say, Hey, Joseph, joy to me. I'm full of grace. I'm pregnant. I mean, honestly, think it through. Think it through. What is she going to do? She can hide it for a while, but then she's going to swell. And so what is she going to do? Listen, Joseph, sit down. I have something to tell you. An angel appeared to me, and an angel told me that I'm pregnant. Now listen, there's not one of you here that if the woman of your life said that to you, whether she's your engaged fiancé or whether she's your wife, there's not one of you who wouldn't immediately think, where is he? All right? And you think Joseph's different? But let's assume that she's able to explain it to Joseph, right? How do they then present themselves in the city of Nazareth? I mean, think about it. Do you think that Mary went around saying to everybody she knew, who knew her intimately, all right, no megachurches there. No churches designed to escape intimacy there, which is what every megachurch is. It's perfectly designed for you never to get rebuked and never to be humbled, right? That's the purpose of megachurches in America. 
So she can't escape to a megachurch where nobody knows her, and she swells and nobody's scandalized, right? And so what's she going to do? Walk around the village streets saying, an angel appeared to me, and what's in me is by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And everybody's going to think, she flipped her lid. You know, she's like delusional. And so what's Mary going to do? Well, Mary's going to shut her mouth, and and Mary is going to suffer silently. If Mary is able to convince Joseph that what is in her is by the Holy Spirit, Joseph and Mary are not going to go around the village saying, what's in her is by the Holy Spirit. If an angel appears to Joseph, and an angel tells Joseph that he should take her as his wife, because what's in her is by the Holy Spirit, Joseph is not going to go to his family and to the neighbors and tell them that this child is from the Holy Spirit. Okay? So now, let me ask you again. In what sense is it that the angel says to her, Joy to you, full of grace. In what sense is it true? You see, everything about Christmas is corrupted. Absolutely everything. So that we cannot possibly put ourselves in Joseph's shoes or in Mary's shoes. We can't do it. Because we know the child was Jesus. We know it was the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've never entered into the humiliation and shame that Mary bore her entire life. And you say, well, there's nothing shameful about giving birth to the Messiah. Every young Jewish girl was just waiting to be pregnant out of wedlock and shut her mouth. And every year at this time, what I say is, can you imagine what all the counselors of Job would say in a church today to Mary? I guarantee you Mary's husband and her elders and her pastor would tell her to have an abortion. And you say, oh, no, 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 that that wouldn't happen. I say, well, it would happen with her husband. And you say, but not the elders. And I say, oh, really? You remember me telling you the story about the Christian school that my parents helped start out in the Philadelphia area. Young woman got pregnant out of wedlock. And you know that's happening in a Christian school all the time, right? She got pregnant out of wedlock and my father was the patron saint of the school. You know, he's the one they brought back to speak at the commencement exercises, right? And so my father finds out that they're kicking her out of the school. Why? Well, they can't have a pregnant woman in, in the high school. All right? And so she comes to the principal and then to the board, and she confesses that she was guilty of sexual immorality and that she's pregnant. And she says that she has asked God to forgive her. She asked the school to forgive her. She asked the board to forgive her. She asked the principal to forgive her. She asked everyone to forgive her. And they respond by expelling her from the school. Okay? Do you understand? What are they telling her to do? They're telling her to do exactly what all of her smarter friends had done, which is to get an abortion so that you don't have to repent publicly. All 
I want you to understand that if Mary got pregnant today, the response of the church in America would be to tell her to have an abortion. Because she's 12 to 14, she's uneducated, she's poor, her husband won't understand, and even if he does, the church won't understand, and the neighbors won't understand. It'll be a scandal to the name of Jesus. So nobody will say, Mary, get an abortion. What they'll say is, boy, that's so tragic. And she won't get invited over for lunch. And her parents will be ostracized. Do you know the word ostracized? Her parents will become dirty too. Joseph will become dirty because he hangs with her. He doesn't give her up. He marries her. Won't be a lot of people at that wedding. And this is, remember, this is how America handles herself. America now is a country that exports her wickedness, the consequences. She has her dirty air in China. And that's where the manufacturing gets done because manufacturing has effluent and she has her babies at the abortuary, all right? And she has the landscapers from Mexico. And the, I mean, pretty soon, America's going to be just pure white, right? No unwanted children. No marriage anymore because it's, it's easier to be clean when you just don't have expectations or hopes. Just move in and out, move in and out, move in and out. No families anymore, just villages. And so everything's clean. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, we define our lives in such a way that there can't be any failure because there's no standard. And the only standard is that we don't have effluent here. So we export our manufacturing and we kill our unborn children and pretty soon, I'm clean. I don't know what your problem is. And that's the way most pulpits present themselves. Pastors use hairspray. And you're far enough away from them that you don't smell their breath and you don't see their mistreatment of their wives. And they never have you into their homes. (laughs) America is absolutely clean today. Absolutely sterile. And when it comes time to die, you put it in the hospital. And when it comes time to die, the the professionals handle it behind curtains. And you're drugged, so you're not there when it happens. And then once you die, what do they do? Well, they cremate you. Has to be sterile. Right? I don't want to be a burden on my family before I die, so I go in a nursing home or a convalescent care facility, and then when I die, I'm going to have myself cremated because I don't want anybody looking at my body. And it's cheaper. And it's all about cleanliness. I mean, do you understand this? Every single thing about your life is being removed from you. Anything that has any organic reality. There's 35,000 cows up at Fair Oaks Farm. (laughs) You know, on 65, you drive down here. The cows are over there, all right? There's no poop anywhere. Nobody knows what poop is. It's been taken out of the Bible when it appears. It's called what? What what does it say in Philippians? Do you know? Rubbish, rubbish. (laughs) Yeah, rubbish, yeah. That's how America translates a word that used to have real meaning. All right? So we don't have any farms. We don't have any cow poop, right? 
We don't have death. We don't have suffering. We don't have any unwanted children. We don't have any marriage anymore. We don't have any virginity. We just have clinical sex. All right? Now, what's the purpose behind all of this? The purpose behind all of this is for you and me to never, ever be humbled. That's the purpose. We never want to be humbled. Dirt humbles us. And so if you can think about Mary, he says to her, Joy to you, full of grace. You're pregnant. And from that moment on, Mary's life is a life of suffering. Okay, people, are you with me? From that moment on, her life is a life of suffering because the people in her village don't know she's carrying the Messiah. All right? That's why the visit to Elizabeth is so special. Because finally, and you feel it, finally somebody understands. And it's not pregnancy that they understand. And Elizabeth, there's no great shakes with her either. I mean, how would you like to be John the Baptist's mother? (laughs) You know? Oh, Lord, please give me John the Baptist. (laughs) How would you like to be Paul's mother? No, if you're going to pick somebody in the New Testament, you want to be Barnabas's mother. Or you want to be the Apostle John's mother. The Apostle of love, you know? Okay, so here's Mary. The beginning of her use by God is for her to suffer shame and humiliation. And from that point, through her life, she is defined as Jesus' mother. Not Joseph's wife, Jesus' mother. And everybody that says that knows that this woman got pregnant early. And Joseph identifies with her, takes her as his wife. And so Mary is, from the beginning, Mary is godly through shame. It is to be shamed, it is to be humiliated to be godly for Mary. Now, here's a question for you. Do you want to be humiliated? Do you want to be shamed? Do you want to be excoriated? Do you want to be rebuked? Do you want to be patronized? Do you want people to look down on you? Do you want people to lecture you from high and lifted up position about the, your foibles or about your, your, your offenses against civilized Good breeding, you know. Do you want to be a pariah? Do you want people to look at you and say in their minds, unclean, unclean? Do you want to be godly? Do you want to be godly? There's absolutely no way I can be godly without being a a public um, a pariah. I can't do it. I can't preach to you in a way that leads you to heaven unless I make a complete ass of myself publicly. I can't do it. What's the most beautiful thing about the musicians last night? You remember how I told you? I said it's that they're not sucking out of you 
adulation the way rock stars do. Remember that? It's not about their pride, right? Well, I didn't say the thing that's actually more obvious than that. The, the thing that's clear about the musicians is that they are willing to be fools for the sake of Christ. Because no person associated with that last night could know it was a performance of sacred Christian song. It's not an IU music school recital where it's about the person whose recital it is and their professor or their voice teacher. It's about Jesus. Every single time Jody opened his mouth, I'm cringing. True. And at one point, surprise, Jody didn't open his mouth. And I turned to my wife and I said to her, I'm so glad he didn't open his mouth this time. I actually said that to Mary Lay. You cannot be godly. You cannot be godly. You cannot be godly. You can't be godly without being the object of people's sympathy or condemnation. You can't do it. And we look back on Mary and we think, what a godly woman, and boy, she sure won the prize. And I say, oh yeah, she won the prize. She won the prize. (laughs) And what's the prize? Mary lived a life of misery. And you say, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's hyperbole. You're, You're putting it, that's, it's, It wasn't really a life of misery. And I say, really? Do you remember how Jesus' life ended? He's naked on a cross in either Washington or New York City or London. At the major crossroads, like on the beltway at D.C. And from the cross... Jesus says to her, your son, your mother, to John and to Mary. That's Mary's life. That's her life. And did she love Jesus? I mean, honestly, do you think she loved Jesus? My daughter-in-law, Heidi, went to Wheaton. Wheaton specializes in turning out godly, biblical Christians who are prepared to live a life of glory to God for Christ and his kingdom. That's the motto of Wheaton. My parents went there. My wife's parents went there. And what Heidi tells me is that the women at Wheaton all prepare to pursue excellence for God and to do great things for God. And so, like I've said, they're going to solve the AIDS problem. They're going to be doctors. They're going to be politicians. They're going to come up with a wonderful new invention that will take care of all kinds of medical problems. And the world today is filled with women who are seizing their destinies and who are going to use every gift that God has given them and to hell with their children, and to hell with their husband if he gets in the way. In fact, better yet, never get married. A number of her friends, they're not married. 
if they're married, they don't have children. Why? These are women of destiny. They're the best and the brightest. And I ask you, what resemblance does that have to Mary? Where's the humility? Where's the shame? Where's the brokenness of being a Christian? Where is it today? Where is it? So Mary gets a wonderful message, and the message is joy to you, full of grace. You're pregnant. And Mary says what? Here's what Mary says. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Listen, women. Don't let them do it to you. Don't let them do it to you. Do not let them do it to you. Don't. Don't let them do it to you, please. Don't let them do it to you. Don't let them do it to you. And you know what I'm talking about. Give God your femininity. We don't need another woman that's pursuing excellence. We need women who will be women. Like Mary. And I'm Protestant. We want women. That's what we want. We want Mary. The world needs Mary. And what is more humiliating than to be a woman? It's the definition of humiliation. And there it says in Scripture that a woman shall be saved through pursuing excellence. No, it says a woman shall be saved through childbearing. And you go, well, that's heresy. And I say it's in the Bible. And you say, well, what in the world does it mean? I say, I have no idea. (laughs) But I think, I think it might have something to do with humility. And so give it to us. Would you give me the gift? Now, here's the truth. The reason I'm able to preach this here is that this church is filled with women who give us their femininity. That's why I can preach this. If I didn't have a church filled with women like this, I would be a coward and would not be saying this to you. I didn't say this in the first service the way I said it here. You know why? Because I have a woman up front who is repentant of feminism, and she was crying as I preach. And so I'm free. That's why my wife repented. You've repented, and so I'm free. That's the truth. 
because I'm weak. I can't preach unless you're obedient. And I know that's wrong. I know I'm supposed to command you in God's name, but I started my entire ministry as a feminist. You know, I couldn't trust God. And then I had Evelyn Jarrett, and she was godly. And then every morning I got up and I went into the shower and I was so sick that I was compromised. I was just broken. And I learned to hate my ministry and to hate my denomination because I compromised myself, you know. And I couldn't, I hated myself. And Evelyn, thank God, this godly woman, she resigned as an elder. And she went home and she became the handmaiden of God. And she cared for her mother as her mother had had its leg taken off from diabetes, had terrible phantom pain. And Evelyn moved from her bedroom with her husband down into the living room and had a little bell next to her mother. And mother would ring the bell in the middle of the night and Evelyn would get up and she'd take care of her mother. And I watched Evelyn's godliness infiltrate the church. Instead of sitting at session meetings, she was home. And then she began to tell all the women that wanted to go to Bible study, they could drop all their kids off because she was home anyhow. And dear Evelyn Jarrett, do you know that I tried to talk her out of resigning as an elder? I was faithless, utterly faithless. And we look at Mary and, oh, gentle Jesus and sweet Mary and, you know, we'll just go say the rosary, bloop, 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 bloop. I have a friend that converted to Catholicism. I asked him, do you say the rosary? He said, yeah. I said, John, why do you say the rosary? He says, well, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit it to you, but I find, I find the rosary comforting, kind of like the click-clack of riding on a train in the tracks. It's a direct quote. And so we got the click-clack. <laughs> and we've got, like, excellence at Wheaton College. And we've got every woman called to be a leader and every woman exercising her gifts. And every homeschool is all about the woman and, and her vision for her children. And by gum, her daughters are going to go out and they're going to go to that place. What's the name of the place where they all go to prepare to be politicians and lawyers? What's the name of the place? Huh? Yeah, Patrick Henry called it. The, all these steroid women from homeschooling families... They go east to Patrick Henry College and they become attorneys. And let me tell you, when you have a woman turn her gifting away from children, she's unbelievably good. (laughs) Here's an idea. It's not that she does it badly, it's she does it well. And so we're going to soon have a woman president and she'll be much better than Georgie Porgy. And I like him but she'll be much better than them. She'll be Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady. All right? You see what's happening? Is the men are not men anymore. The women are men. There aren't any babies. The babies that are inconvenient are killed. We export our manufacturing, and everything about our lives has been flipped entirely upside down from what God created in the garden. And then we call this Christianity. In fact, not just Christianity, but evangelical Christianity. And we're being led by a bunch of preachers 
who have no faith won't call any of you to repentance, won't ever apply Mary to the women and Joseph to the men, but will instead just give you sermons at weddings where there's no sex. Everybody's called to love. There's no submission. There's no authority. And this is what we call Christian faith. This is it. And the pastor has hairspray. (laughs) And good breath. Here we go. There you go. You're safe. (laughs) And listen, if you're going to be godly, what are you going to be? You will be ashamed because God will tell you constantly to do things that will be completely a violation of what it is to be hip, to be cool, to be suave, to be sophisticated, to be educated, to be middle or upper middle class, to be acceptable. And so here's your choice. And it's true for the men and it's true for the women. You can either be acceptable or you can be holy. You cannot love mammon and love God. You cannot be acceptable. Never in history can it happen. Never in history can it happen. But it certainly can't happen today. You cannot be acceptable and holy. You must pick one or the other. Because to be holy is to be peculiar. And to become peculiar is painful. Sanctification is the great scandal of the church in America today. There is no sanctification because it's defined as legalism. And it's been removed from the church. Everything today is justification. Because to be sanctified requires you to do what? It requires you to have a sermon like this. And nobody here is proud right now. I mean, you got a preacher, you know. <laughs> Let's just not describe it, all right? And then afterwards, I mean, what are you going to say about that, you know? Well, well, honey, are you going to get the kids in the nursery? You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And then you go home for lunch and you say, well, you know, that was something. <laughs> I think I'll go back to that church next week and maybe see him cry again. And it's so embarrassing. I mean, a young man, but I mean, he's old and fat. And he's crying. <laughs> this is bad news. Listen, can I reassure you, next week I'm not preaching. <laughs> So come back next week and you'll have a much more presentable and acceptable sermon. Who's preaching? Who? Yeah. Yeah. Stephen and I are like, sting like a bee and bit like a butterfly. All right. So Mary says what? Behold the bond slave, and even that we dress up to make it cleaner, because we don't want to write what? We don't want to write slave, (laughs) but that's what it is, the slave. 
Behold, the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And listen, that's what we need to be. It needs to be a conspiracy, a church of the good shepherd, of a bunch of slaves of God that are prepared to have it done to us according to the word. Right? So is that where we're all at? It'll be painful. It'll be humiliating. Is that where we're at? Are you prepared to be men and women who are slaves and will accept the will of the Lord? Huh? Huh? Remember when Moses asked the people, the people all shouted what? Yes! Remember that? Remember that? Moses said to them, how about it? What do you think? Are you prepared to do it or to be obedient to God? And they all said what? Yes! And then, do you remember what Moses did? Then he said, now wait, 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 wait. You don't understand. (laughs) You have absolutely no idea what you're saying yes to. Let me describe it a little bit more. And then he said, you know, if you don't keep your word, and if you're not obedient, this is what's going to... Now, let me hear you again. Are you prepared to obey God? And they all said again, what? Yes! This is who we are. Thank you, women. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. And Helen's sitting there thinking right now, oh no, you have me wrong. There are women in this church like this. But I'm not one of them. Every godly woman in this church right now is thinking he's talking about another woman, but he's not talking about me. (laughs) But no, I mean who I say. You women are absolutely the strength and the capital of this church. And I knew I was going to say this when I got in the pulpit this morning, and I knew that the reaction will be, well, he's patronizing them. Well, there you have pater, you know. It's so nasty. Anything fatherly today is condemned. Listen, I don't care. I don't care. I, if I'm patronizing you, that's fine. I'm patronizing you. I don't give a rip. I'm just thankful for you. I'm thankful for your godliness. I'm thankful that you lose your temper at your children, which is about the most you can do as a mother today. I'm thankful for your blood, for your milk. I'm thankful for your prayers. I'm thankful for your submission. I'm thankful for your beauty, okay? And that's an end to it. That's that's the end. That's, That's the end. Thank you. You're Mary. And I'm thankful. Okay? There we have it. Let's pray.